This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We're talking today about uh, anger. Um, this summer, I had an experience with that. Well, more than one. Uh, we were on a trip to Montana. It's a wonderful time. Day one, Susan and I left Bozeman. We went down the interstate. We meandered our way down to this little mountain town right before we get to Beartooth Pass. Anybody been to Beartooth Pass, Montana? It's beautiful country. You've got to go there sometime. It's the closest thing to heaven probably since, I don't know, on this earth. But anyway, we're about ready to leave the town to go to Beartooth Pass and on to Yellowstone Park. And we're in this wide intersection. And it's the only intersection in town. There's a stop sign here and one there and one there and one there. And I stopped at my stop sign and I'm meandering my way very slowly through the intersection. And there's two women just walking in the crosswalk on the far end. And one woman is impaired. She, she's walking with a, a walker and she's doing just fine. And the other woman stops in the middle of the crosswalk and she goes like this, looking right at me, stop! <laughs> and I just look at her and so I just slow it down a little bit more a little bit more I'm just really just a snail's pace just meander way through the truck and then she looks at me again she says you haven't stopped yet and out of my mouth comes these words you idiot I was standing in the need of prayer and I turn to my wife and I say uh, she didn't hear me say that. And Susan says, oh, the windows are down. She heard it. <laughs> and so I just stop right there in the middle of the intersection. I just stop right in the middle of the intersection and let them pass. And finally they do. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm just having a beautiful day until that moment. And then I'm just trying to get my head around how in the world does something like that happen? Well, we got on our way. We went through this beautiful Bear Tooth Pass country, and we stopped off at Cook City, and we had lunch, and we went on over to Yellowstone, and we went through Yellowstone to Mammoth Springs, and it was evening time, and the elk were out. We'd already seen some grizzly. It would have been another really good day. And there were signs all over the place that said, don't approach the elk, or don't feed the elk, or don't go near the elk. And there were some rangers there that were shooing a couple of people off away from the elk. And those two people were shooed off, and they walked right in front of us. And I looked at Susan, and I said, do they look familiar to you in any way? (laughs) Same two women. (laughs) This time I stopped. (laughs) Doesn't God have a sense of humor, I tell you. Well, we're talking today about anger. We're talking about different kinds of anger. One of the things I want us to make sure we are not hearing is that we're to do away with all kinds of anger or the emotion of anger. God has wired us in such a way that we experience anger, and the emotion of anger is there to protect us and to act responsibly when we are endangered. We're not also talking about how that uh, anger is a sin, It is what we do with our anger that depends on whether it is sinful or not. Jesus got angry. 
We know in the scripture that he cleared the temple and he was so angry when people had taken the advantage of the poor and turned the house of prayer into a marketplace. Jesus got angry about that. He did something about that. Or there were times when Jesus would look right at the religious leaders who were upset at him because he was breaking the Sabbath rules and the religious rules. And, and Jesus looked at them in anger, we're told in the gospel, because they were putting their religion ahead of the needs of people. So anger is not in itself sinful. But what we do with our anger and what it is that makes us angry in the first place says an awful lot about us. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, talks about the four different kinds of anger. One is visceral anger. That's the anger in which there is no reaction time between the action and the reaction. What I was displaying in Montana was visceral anger. There was no intelligence to it. <laughs> the next time that I have that, note to Bob, count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And by the time I get to ten, usually there's some intelligence that begins to kick in. That's how you deal with visceral anger. Thank you, sister. She said that was good. I like this. I like this. Meditative anger. That's a different kind of anger. That's an anger that um, you kind of hold on to your spirit. It's an anger that holds on to you. It's when you nurse it and when you vent it and uh, you justify it and it just kind of smolders and it becomes something that creates an angry spirit in you. That's a very dangerous kind of anger. Very destructive. Then there's the anger of unmet expectations. Now, how many of you are a control freak or are married to a control freak or have parents as control freaks or... Uh, you don't have to say more about that, do you? But the more of a control freak you are, the more angry you're likely to be because there's going to be a lot of unmet expectations in your life because guess what? The world doesn't revolve around us. And there's a lot of disappointments. There's a lot of events. There's a lot of people that are going to disappoint us. And if we can't control all that, the more likely we are to become angry and to be an angry person. There's also the anger that masks fear. In fact, I think it's a good idea the next time we're angry is to stop and ask ourselves the question, why am I angry? Am I afraid of something? Because oftentimes, anger is fear. It's masking itself. We're afraid that we're going to lose something significant in our life. So it's important to understand the dynamics of anger how anger operates. Jesus talked about anger. He talked about these different aspects of anger in the gospel. And we're going to look now in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say about anger and then also a couple of illustrations that Jesus gives on how to deal with anger, how to reduce anger, how to address it. He says these words, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Some translations 
translates the word fool as idiot. We're not using that translation today. <laughs> Jesus is telling us about something very serious. He's saying that when you have that kind of a spirit of anger, it's not enough to keep from killing somebody. And we know that there's all kinds of murder going on and a lot of killing in this world from the gunman in Washington, D.C. to uh, the event in Kenya yesterday to the shootings in Chicago. And we know this is just something that's episodic throughout our world. And, and yet Jesus is saying, you know, it's not even enough to stop from killing. You've got to address what's behind all that. The angry spirit, the murder of words. You've got to address that. And he's telling us that if we don't, we're in the danger of the fire of hell, Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was literally a place just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place that was a smoldering heap of trash. It was a real place that anyone in that day knew about, literally. So Jesus is taking a slice out of everyday life to help us to understand that an angry, smoldering spirit is a fire of hell that we can have right inside of us. And he warns us not to go there, that that is destructive. And then he gives us two different illustrations on what to do when there are episodes in life that creates anger. He gives this episode about when you're offering your gift to the altar. And if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First, to be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I remember very clearly back in January of 1977, I was in my little country church, my pastor of 14 years, Reverend Faust, it was probably the last sermon I heard him give, and he was preaching on this very text. And so as a 20-something, I came home that right after the service, I walked up the road to my home, and I walked into our living room, and on our living room wall, there was the black phone. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The black phone on the wall. It was the only phone in the house. This is ancient times, way back. <laughs> and I pick up the phone, and I call my aunt. My aunt and uncle have been estranged from us for years. There's bad blood between my parents and my aunt and uncle. And it's pervasive in the family. And I didn't know any better than to take the words of Jesus seriously. Nobody told me otherwise. And I pick up the phone, and my father's sitting right there in the living room, and I call for Aunt Fern. She answers the phone, and I said, Fern, can we come down? Can I come down and visit with you? Why would you want to come down here? She said, well, I said to make things right. And then she turns to, to my uncle, and she asks if I could come. And while that's going on, my father's turning to my mother and said, what is he doing? I don't know. He's crazy. <laughs> and then Fern says, no, Robert, you don't, you don't need to come down. There's too much water under the bridge. Ten days later, my uncle died of a heart attack. 
And at that death, we were sent word, don't come. Don't come around us. So every act or effort of reconciliation on our part doesn't always turn out well. But here's the point. Jesus wants his followers to be reconcilers. He doesn't want us to be grudge holders. And it doesn't matter really who started it, who's going to end it. Who's going to initiate an act of reconciliation? Jesus is calling us to be reconcilers, not people that hold on to our anger. Now, the cool thing is that over the years, my aunt kind of softened in her spirit. And we began a relationship, and we sent each other birthday cards, and I actually officiated at her funeral. And I was able to give a witness to a lot of the family members about, uh, you know, we need to drop this raggy old coat at the door of anger and malice and hatred and never put on it again. So Jesus is calling us to be reconcilers and not to be people that hang, hold on to anger. Another illustration that he gives is come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. I remember a couple years later, I was still in my 20s. I didn't know any better than to take the words of Jesus seriously. And so I'm preaching on this text. And I'm preaching on the words of Paul that says believers should never take believers to court. And I use words like always and never. And I remember there was a woman in the congregation that confronted me that week. And she said to me, I cannot believe how naive and stupid you are. <laughs> she had my attention. And I think she was right to a point. Because, uh, you know, we can, we can take the words of Jesus literally and apply them to black and white in all occasions. But you know what? I also think I was right. We live in a t litigious world. We live in a culture that's setting so many win and lose situations up. We got to get off this stuff of going at it in our politics, in our community, in our faith, in our relationships, in our homes, in our families. How do we create win-win situations? And when we're got to go to court, I guess you got to go to court, but my goodness, isn't it better to try to settle things before it gets to that point? So Jesus, Jesus is not letting us off the hook here. He's not saying, it's, oh, it's, it's okay, you're justified in hanging on to your anger. No, he's telling us very point blank and very clearly, you know what, this is destructive stuff. This is an issue of the heart. You've got to take hold of this situation before it takes hold of you. Well, James Bryan Smith, you know, he's got a, a way of intellectually helping us to understand sometimes what it is that prompts us to be this way. And in this chapter in the book uh, on anger, he talks about what's called uh, false imperative narratives. We have those printed in the front of your Pray Study Grow material. You may want to just look at these. 
And he also gives a corrective kingdom narrative that I think is really important to kind of think things through because, you know, sometimes we just need to step back objectively and think through this. And so one of those false narratives is that I'm alone. If we feel like we're alone in this world, that everything's against us, that everyone's against us, it's going to create a sense of anger and fight in us. But the kingdom narrative, living according to the kingdom of God, living in trusting relationship with Jesus, reminds us that we are never alone, that Jesus is always with us. Another false narrative says, I must be in control at all times. All of us who are control freaks. But Jesus ultimately is control. He is in control. And even when we've lost control, he can take over the reins of our life. Another false narrative says that something terrible will happen if I make a mistake. You know, we need to create a culture where we just recognize that mistakes happen all the time. Spilt milk can occur. It takes the pressure off when I recognize that I don't have to be perfect. And we can kind of just learn from our mistakes. That's the kingdom narrative. Another false imperative narrative is that life will always be fair and just. We know that life isn't fair. We know that life is not always just. But after doing what we can to bring justice and fairness, we ultimately have to, in those times when it is not fair, to really trust that God is a God of justice and truth and righteousness, and God will always have the last word. Finally, the narrative, i I got to be perfect all the time. As a recovering perfectionist, it's wonderful to know that Jesus accepts me even when I'm not perfect. Now, are there some false narratives that you've bought into? Is there one of those false narratives that we just looked at that you need to kind of ask to leave your thinking? Just go ahead and renounce it. Kind of say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I send you away. I'm not going to think that way anymore. And what is the true narrative that you need to replace that false thinking with that feeds this fear and this anger and will help transform your spirit and then change your behavior because God changes us first on the inside and then outward? Now, there's a key word to all this that Jesus doesn't mention by name, but it's, it's so prevalent in everything that he's about, and the word is forgiveness. Forgiveness is what is needed in this world. Forgiveness is what is needed in our life, in our spirit, in our relationships. It's forgiveness. Nelson Mandela, who suffered at the hands of apartheid government in South Africa and was imprisoned in a cell, a very stark, small cell, and, and was persecuted for years, and then when apartheid ended, became the president of the new reformed South African government. Now in his 90s, over the years, this man has been asked the question, don't you harbor resentment toward all those people who did those awful acts of injustice against you and your people? And Mandela says, if I didn't forgive them, I would still be in prison. Would you say those words with me? If I didn't forgive them, I would still be in prison. I think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying to us about anger and bitterness and resentment, that we hold on to this stuff. And we're the one that's in prison. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we excuse the action. It doesn't mean that we're leaving someone off the hook. 
it does mean that we're forgoing the grudge. It means that we're giving the person over to God. And I think part of the issue is those of us who know the mercy and forgiveness of God, we're afraid that God's going to be merciful and forgiving of them. And we're not sure we want that to happen. And yet forgiveness is the way. It's the way that God brings in his kingdom. There's a lot of angry people that put Jesus on a cross. Angry, malicious people. And Jesus forgave them. And he forgives you and us. The question is never, will God forgive me? The question is always, will I simply receive this forgiveness? It's the only way to go and live without that angry spirit. Well, there's a soul training exercise that we ask people to do in every one of these uh, weeks as we talk about uh, how to learn to live like Jesus. And the soul training exercise this week is Sabbath. The idea of Sabbath. You're here in church today. You're off to a really good start on your Sabbath day. Congratulations. What is Sabbath about? Sabbath is about worship, and it's also about rest. It's about really, truly worshiping God and experiencing the goodness of God. And it's also stop working. Some of us are old enough to remember the blue laws. When they went away, it radically changed our culture. We are a people that do not know how to stop work. You know, if I had my way about it, and I don't, <laughs> but I'm a control freak, so let me tell you. We wouldn't talk about work on Sunday when we're here in worship. We, would, we wouldn't talk to people that's involved in this trade or this business or that business. We'd just be here enjoying each other's fellowship and worshiping God. I think that's called Sabbath. And when we go home and we've got to go back to the office Sunday afternoon or we've got to be on the phone always, that's not Sabbath. I mean, we really do need to get this as a people. My Sabbath is on Friday. My Sabbath, I spend days, uh, some hours with God. I love walking, and I went and, and walked along this creek yesterday, and you could look down in the, in the clearness of this water, and you could see the fish and the leaves. And there's something about when you and I are still, we're able to look into our soul and see that all that's there. And I saw the reflection of myself, and I saw all the trees and the beauty. And the mystics have always told us that our soul is like a pond that we look into. We need to find that Sabbath time where we do that, where we unplug. And we are there in the presence of God, and we learn to play. We do things that we like to do. We play games with family. We, whatever it is that restores us, and we, for one day, do not do the things that drain us or exhaust us. I found in my life that when I lose my temper, I'm either stressed or really tired or both. <laughs> There's something about Sabbath keeping that helps reduce that and helps me do. So how is it that you want to live your life? How are you choosing to live your life? What are you 
going to do about anger in your life? What is it that causes you to be angry? Will you become angry at the things that makes God angry? And will you seek to right those things? And then the other matters, will you learn to release this anger? Will you be a reconciler? Will you be a person that forgives? You know, life is kind of like uh, going down the highway in a car. Up in Montana, when we got up to Glacier Park, I was afraid I'd run into those women again. <laughs> but, in <laughs> but instead, we came across this car that Bo McLean saw at the license plate. I had to take a picture. It simply says, forgive. You know, I think that's the way you deal with it. You stop the car and you invite forgiveness to always be a companion in your life with you. And as forgiveness is your companion, anger eventually has to leave the car. So choose forgiveness. Choose Jesus. Let him settle your spirit. And freely receiving forgiveness freely give.